Grant and Danny welcoming you back. 106.7 The Fan. We're with you until 6.30 this evening. Let's go to the BetQL guest hotline. Bet smarter to beat the books. Download the BetQL app. Visit BetQL.com to talk to Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post. When Sally swings, she doesn't tip the ball. You know, she doesn't foul <laughs> balls off one way or the other. Generally, that thing's sailing out toward the outfield fence. The NFL deserves every bit of its raging Daniel Snyder headache is the story we saw. We wanted to have her on to talk about it. Here is an excerpt. For most of the past 24 years, Commissioner Roger Goodell and the owners knew who and what Snyder was, but they chose not to care because the only people affected by his petty bug-pinning tyrannies were lowly employees, ticket buyers, minority business partners, and women. Uh, Sally joins us now. Thank you for the time. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Um, Sally, the, the, you know, the multiple stories that have come out and the timeline of, in, in this thing, where at one point it seems that the minority owners in Snyder were fighting and they had legitimate complaints, it sounds like, in terms of financial uh, misdealings, all alleged, of course, I have to say that. And then you've got the Beth Wilkinson investigation that was going on at the same time, and it seems the NFL couldn't wait for both things to be swept under a rug, culminating in a very whisper-quiet, you know, day after July 4th uh, news dump. And I'm sitting here hoping that they do the right thing. It just it, it feels very empty. Yeah, I mean, you can hear the sound of Roger Goodell's broom, you know, sweeping it all away. Uh, you know, in, in, in both of these uh, big stories that broke, one in the Washington Post and then one on ESPN. So, I mean, you know, we've known this uh, for months that, that Roger Goodell buried the Beth Wilkinson report. Uh, and now it turns out, you know, it appears he buried uh, significant financial concerns by minority partners. What that tells you is that the NFL really only cares about their majority partners but, you know, this is going to make life really hard for the NFL because it's getting increasingly difficult for a single owner to buy an NFL team with, you know, the prices going up into the billions. So there's going to be a lot of people who need minority partners going forward. And what Roger Goodell has done, apparently, is make life incredibly difficult for for three very significant minority owners, I might add. One of them was Fred Smith, the owner of FedEx. And so you wonder, you know, how attracted are minority owners going to be to this league, you know, after seeing how the league, you know, facilitated and and enabled and prospered, you know, uh, Dan Snyder in all of this um, at the expense of his partners. Sally, if what we all think we know is true, okay, and, and that is that the Wilkinson report was initially supposed to be written and then somehow along the, the way they said, actually, just do a verbal report to me. And the minority owners, as you were just talking about, asked them to find out how Dan got $55 million without them saying they wanted him to. And the NFL said, no, we're not going to find that out. Why should we have any hope or expectations for this Mary Jo White investigation when she was hired by the NFL? You know, I don't know that we, we necessarily should have any expectations for that uh, written report any more than for the Beth Wilkinson report. Both of them are very, very significant heavyweight investigators and lawyers who had reputations, you know, to defend and protect. And I'm sure Beth Wilkinson is not happy about the burying of her report. 
Uh, but what's clear is that Beth Wilkinson did a good job on her report. So I think we can figure on learning something from Mary Jo White's investigation. I think we can figure that she's doing a really thorough job. Whether the NFL itself releases a written report the way it promised to is another thing entirely. They're also capable of releasing, you know, say a one-page summary the way they did with Beth Wilkinson and say, oh, look, we put three paragraphs in writing. You know, that's a written report. Um, so, you know, but I do have expectations that Mary Jo White did a good job and and knows a lot, just like I think Beth Wilkinson knows a lot. Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post with us here on Grant and Danny. So, Sally, at a certain point, the tone from the NFL changed. In other words, everyone was in concert. Everybody was on the same team. And I don't know exactly what the tipping point was, but when Washington said, we'll do our own investigation, and then Roger Goodell said, no, you won't. A couple hours later, we'll do it. I don't know how you can investigate yourself. And since then, they've seemingly been at odds. What do you think changed here from the NFL's perspective towards Washington? I'll tell you what I really think, and I don't have any special insight. I'll, I'll start by saying that our, our reporters, you know, Liz Clark and Mark Maskey and Nikki Javlava have much more information than I do. So I'm going off of their information. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll preface whatever I say by starting there. Um, but number one, first of all, Roger Goodell does not ever act alone. Uh, if he is acting against an owner or if he is disciplining an owner, there are other owners involved in that. There is a panel of, quote, advisors to Roger Goodell, and the lead advisor is Jerry Jones. Okay, so so this is not Roger Goodell by himself. I think that the other owners probably cut Dan Snyder as much slack as possible because, A, they don't want uh, other owners turning on them if they have sexual harassment problems in their building, and B, they don't want other owners turning on them or the commissioner turning on them if they have financial disputes with minority partners, okay? So whatever they did with Dan Snyder, they did from self-interest. Their self-interest is what has changed because they are accustomed to dealing with problems that, um, you know, at some point the fire can be put out. With Dan Snyder, as I've been trying to tell them in columns for 24 years now, the fire never goes out. This is not a person who deals in a very rational manner with his business. And they have this fire pit, this thermal fire pit going on that they cannot extinguish no matter how many accommodations they make. And I think they're just finally sick and tired of it. And by the way, the one thing you don't do to billionaires is threaten them because they've got deeper pockets collectively than Dan Snyder will ever have. The column Sally wrote was about the NFL essentially uh, deserving what they're getting now with Dan Snyder giving them these headaches because they aided and abetted for a long time. So do do you agree, it it sounds like we're in lockstep on this, that they no longer are going to be defending him the way that they have? Or am I putting words in your mouth? No, they're absolutely not defending him anymore. I mean, I think you have to figure some of what's made it it into – the news media in the last week has come from from owners or at least been aided and abetted by owners. I mean, you know, those those records from the uh, minority partners, I mean, that's very that is very hard stuff to get. It certainly didn't come from the investigators. And so I don't know where it came from uh, in ESPN story, but uh, I'm guessing you know, somebody very much on the inside had to have helped with that story. And then, and then quite frankly, you know, owners are never as aggressive as they were in our news story about saying there will be a vote on this guy. Uh, there will, there will be 24 votes are there to be had to uh, push him out of the league. 
And then for them to overtly put Dan Snyder as a topic uh, of discussion on the agenda for the next owners' meeting, you know, all of that's very, very unusual stuff. Owners tend to be very circumspect about each other. It's very hard to get even a quote from one owner about another owner. And what you have now in the last in the last couple of months is you have owners talking about Dan Snyder, and it started with Ursay saying what he said. Uh, a few months ago, and there's no way Ursay went out there all on his own. You know, he was an emissary. Uh, Jerry Jones has been an emissary. So these have been shots fired across Dan Snyder's bow. And the fact of the matter is that the league is finished with him. Sally, years ago, this is a, a very minor transaction, but years ago I was selling a car before I, I moved to, to New York. And I thought I had an agreement with this person. And then every time I thought an agreement was done, he would come back with some other kind of over-the-top bizarre demand about, you know, I had to pay for repairs. Then I had to transport it to him via truck. And finally, I just walked away. I said, this isn't worth it. And I sold it to a dealership for less. But it reminds me, on a grander scale, now talking about Snyder, in kind of the 11th hour, it seems like, if we do buy that the sale is happening, with the post reporter about all the demands that he's making kind of here at the last minute indemnification and nothing comes out in any kind of report about me and all these other sorts of things. It just seems kind of on brand and in character. What do you make of that part of this thing? And oh, and what do you think's next? I think it's totally on brand and totally in character. Number one, uh, you know, he double crosses all of his partners. Eventually nobody ever walks away from dealing with Dan Snyder happy. Let me let me start with that, whether it's, you know, the city of Richmond or whether it's Ashburn or whether it's players, you know, uh, whether it's LeVar Arrington. I mean, you name it. I, OK, I, I have a better question. Name one person who's come out of dealings with Dan Snyder and said, oh, that was a really good deal. And I really had fun. You know, that's that doesn't happen with him. Uh, that's not how it goes. So, I mean, this is this is classic. And he knows how badly the owners want him out now. He can smell it. He knows that, uh, you know, they want, uh, you know, a, another partner like the Waltons uh, was a very good partner for the NFL. He knows that they want him out and he is testing, uh, you know, their ceiling on the, on all of this. And he'll, you know, he's like the pesty kid who uh, sees how far he can go. And if you don't, if you don't draw your line in the sand, he'll he'll go absolutely as far as he can. You know, and so why these guys have accommodated him this way all this time is really, you know, it was bad business on top of everything else. And I think that's what they really have finally come to is that it's bad business uh, staying, um, you know, in league with this guy. Leaving the column that you wrote and now just kind of asking you for your opinion on, on how this is all going. What do you think changed from Dan's perspective? Now, I know why he sold the team after for years, or excuse me, I know why he changed the name after for years he said he would never do that, right? And that was essentially he and Fred Smith are at odds. They're going to take FedEx off the stadium. Now he can't sell jerseys. There's companies bowing out. He doesn't have a choice. What I can't figure out is on October 2nd, he goes and reminds everyone he's not going anywhere and takes pictures with Jerry Jones with his frosted tips. And one month later, they hire a bank to try to sell the team. What do you think changed in those 30 days? I think the league made it clear to him that he couldn't get a stadium deal done and therefore he was out. I mean, I think the numbers came clear. Look, once he once he bought out his minority partners, I mean, the guy is as far as I can tell, I mean, it's a black box, but we know he's 450 we know he took out a 450 million dollar loan and bought out his partners for 895 million. We know he launched a 192 million dollar yacht. We know that he has a bombardier and a uh, set, I believe it's a Airstream, Gulfstream, 
uh, jet. He's got two, at least two planes. He's got a, a helicopter uh, that's worth at least $11 million. He's got two homes. He employs at least 60 staff. Uh, he's got actually more than two homes. He's probably got four homes between Aspen, England, the two uh, places Virginia in Virginia and Maryland, yeah. Mm-hmm. Virginia and Maryland. And then he's got, I mean, who knows what else he's got. Uh, at any rate, uh, my point being, you know, it looks to me like he's leveraged up to the hilt, and it looks to me like the league basically said, look, you know, you're out of money, you're out of gas, you're out of uh, goodwill with us, you're out of goodwill with the district and Maryland and Virginia, you have no moves left. I, to me, I think that's what happened. I think that he financially doesn't have a choice. So, Sally, I agree with every word that you wrote in, in your column. And I also know that I'm I'm the problem. I'm guilty. I, I love the product. I, I do this thing where I, I get outraged, I get really annoyed, and I get frustrated, and I get ticked off at, at you know the, the injustice, the double talk, the you know, the, sort of the patting me on the head and telling me nothing to see here when I know there is, and yet I can't wait to draft my fantasy team. I can't wait for preseason games for Washington and you know the 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 weeks that come on into the Super Bowl. I'm just as much of a problem as anybody else. I don't really have a great question about that, but I kind of see how they get away with it. Yeah, I mean, look, you have to look. There's football, and then there's the the, the league business. There's yeah. the business of the league, and then there's the league. The league is the guys, you know. Just like the Washington Post is the reporters and the writers and the editors. I mean, um, you know, it, it, the bottom line is that is that we love the league because we love the men who play the play the game, you know, uh, and we love the spirit that they play it with, you know, and the commitment and the devotion and, the, uh, you know, they. They're they're really worthy of watching, you know. I mean, I can't think of anything I'd rather watch than uh, than the New England Patriots in their heyday with Tom Brady, you know, making all those fourth quarter comebacks. I mean, that's really worth watching, and it's been real frustrating, frankly, you know, um, all all these last few years because I mean, Washington craves a winner. The Washington Post craves a winner. You know, everyone's business is better in the district, including mine uh, and ours at the Washington Post when. The Washington football team is a winner. And, you know, I just think I, I, I think this guy has really held the, an entire community hostage. And as I wrote in the column, and now he's holding the league hostage. And it, you, you finally want to say to Goodell and the other owners, OK, how's it feel? You know, this is what this is what ticket buyers have been feeling for 24 years. Thanks to you guys. You know, this is what the women who work in that building have had to put up with for 24 years. This is what every secretary, you know, every assistant GM, every personnel person had to cope with and deal with all these years because you guys wouldn't do anything about him. I want to ask one final question, and and I'll admit that the elephant in the room, obviously, is you write for the Washington Post. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. I think we all get that. Um, Dan Snyder seems to think that that means anything you guys do, that (laughs) Jeff Bezos is telling you to do or or that – like he's in on your he's like, Sally, you know what column I think you should write, which is not really how journalism works. I, I digress. Can I tell you something? Yes, please we, do. we can't get to the guy. I mean, that's the funny part of all of that is we really can't get to him. I mean, I've met him once in all of the years that he's owned the paper. I don't know anyone who's been able to reach him uh, on this subject much. In fact, I don't know anyone personally who actually talks to the guy all the time. So that's just pure nonsense. It's utter nonsense. My personal preference would be for Jeff Bezos to buy a different team. You know, I'd rather see him buy Seattle 
because, you know, we, we have to put up with questions like this. You know, uh, the, the bottom line is it won't affect how we cover the team. It's not affecting how we cover Dan Snyder. I have not written a single word different about Dan Snyder since Jeff Bezos bought the paper than I wrote 24 years ago in his first two or three years of owning the team when it became obvious First of all, what an unpleasant personality he was to deal with, and second of all, how uh, he was running the team and how lou- what, what a lousy job he was doing. He's been doing a lousy job, and he's been a lousy personality for 24 years. That did not start with Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. I would say that your columns from 20 years ago, they haven't aged poorly. They are salient. <laughs> I mean, Just I, change I the dates, Alex. But, but like, <laughs> my, my I question mean, I wish you, I was wrong. I no, wish but, I was wrong. I wish the guy had brought a Super Bowl to town and I had to write, you know, the, the column that said, oh, boy, I was really wrong about Dan Snyder. Whoopsie. But I'm, I'm not. I'm sorry. No, you, know, you, just, you have been right. But and you kind of answered my question, which was, by saying you almost prefer he buys another team, so you guys just don't, don't have to deal with. I almost prefer. I would really prefer you that prefer. Jeff Bezos bought another team. So my, my would, question was going to be: Do you even buy that he like would would be excluded, or, or that Snyder really actually believes those things? I think it's very simple well, for me. If someone's offering he, me the most money, I'm giving them something. But I can't. But you're you're bound by rationality. Yeah, I, I can't. But I can't think Again, like Dan. Yes. Yeah, no, you're you're not a disordered personality, okay? So that's number one. But number two, so two, there's two relevant things here. Um, first of all, I don't think Jeff Bezos is stupid. He's not going to get suckered into paying more for the team than he should because Dan Snyder is is making him feel desperate and sidelined or something like that. I don't believe that will work if that's what this is all about, number one, because I just don't – there's nothing in Jeff Bezos' business history that demonstrates that he's an idiot, that's number one. Number two, um, the, the NFL rules for buying a team, Dan Snyder can possibly sideline a bidder, but the bottom line is that the league has to approve whoever he wants to sell the team to. So the league can make it very, very difficult for Snyder to just sell the team to whoever he wants. That's not how that works. Uh, he has to know that the league will approve the sale. And the league can really has a lot of leverage with that. They can really they can hold him hostage there. So you know, would the NFL? I mean, frankly, I think the NFL would love for Be- they want Bezos to buy a team. I'm pretty sure about that. I don't think they care which team it is. I really don't. Um, and I'm not. You know, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't know enough about Jeff Bezos to know which team he would prefer. He's also got very very deep ties in Seattle. So. You know, look, for the sake of perception, I would rather see him own another team, you know. But, you know, people have dealt with these situations before. There have been, you know, people in Chicago who own the newspaper and the local sports team and the same thing in Boston. You know, we would deal with it if he bought the paper. I mean, I'm sorry if he bought the team. But I really, um, you know, he may end up the owner of the team, but it won't be, it, it won't be because – you know, he paid some exorbitantly ridiculous amount that Dan Snyder managed to extort from him. Sal, always great to catch up with you. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, guys. It was interesting. Outstanding column. Sally Jenkins with us here on Grant and Danny on 106.7 The Fan. Every time she comes on, she's terrific. Yep, every time. I mean, she just doesn't pull punches. And and you know what I think is is what I enjoy about talking to her is I always understand like the very detailed, and um, even when we talked about the Venata story, like the complicated stuff, uh-huh. she just speaks it in a way that is easy for your boy. Connects 
one dot to the second dot yeah. and then arrives at the conclusion. Very simple. Yeah, I'm with you. Colin was really good. Ron Rivera's at the Combine. He was on NFL Network today. He actually, for the first time, divulged information he hadn't previously on what the commanders thought about how going into the draft last year. So that's good audio. We're going to play it for you next right here on Grant and Danny. Welcome back. Grant and Danny on the fan. The NFL Combine is ongoing in Indianapolis. Ron Rivera and many members of the team staff are on site. Rivera was actually on NFL Network today doing an interview, and they asked him about Sam Howell as the starting quarterback for Washington. This uh, begins with his pretty stock answer that he's used now 10 or 12 different times this offseason in different interviews nationally about the fact that Sam's going to have to earn it, but he's going to get a chance to be, he loves the term QB1. He doesn't say starter. I don't know what that means. I just want to know what it means. The, the What I find interesting about this, the, the kind of the moneymaker quote here is after that, you'll hear Daniel Jeremiah ask about how he had Sam Howell in his top 50 prospects, and he's stunned that Washington got him as low as they did. And then Rivera, for the first time, gave more insight on what the commanders thought of how before the draft. Here's how it sounded. We're going to give him every opportunity. We most certainly are. You know, I've told everybody he'll, he'll get a start as, as QB1 for right now. And if he earns it and continues to earn it, you know, we're going to try and bring as much competition as we can, the right kind of competition to push him. And, and if he earns it, he'll get a chance. Coach, I was just looking through my notes from last year, and I, he was my 48th player in that draft last year. And somehow yep. he gets all the way to you guys in the fifth round. When you're, when you're in the draft room, at what point in time you're like, oh, this has got to stop. This guy, this is time to do this. We kept expecting it to happen somewhere around the second, third round, to be honest with you. And when, when we when we addressed our needs in our first four picks, and we're sitting there going, he's sitting there looking at us, staring at us with the first pick in the fifth round. So we pulled the trigger, and we said, this is going to be our guy, and you know, hopefully he'll develop and, and be able to help us. And, and we really think that's the track he is on right now, is that he's developing, growing, and has a chance to help us. So that was Rivera today, NFL Network. If he was taken at the end of the second or the early third round, how much different is what's happening right now? Night and day. And Well, here, let me rephrase. He'd be in this position, A.K. Yeah, it's not unreasonable that he's going to be the starter here. Or excuse me, excuse me. I'm sorry. QB1. QB1. I didn't mean to misspeak. That's that's on me. I'll work on it. I just, it's a, it's a Freudian slip. And I don't know the difference. Anyway, but the viewpoint would be different. The, 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 the national conversation wouldn't be, yeah, they're going to go get somebody else. So we don't really believe you. This would be, he'd be perceived differently, right? As, as some guy that, you know, just sort of fell to them and it's a developmental project, et cetera. Everyone would believe, I think, or would be more likely to believe that, yeah, the keys to the kingdom, the keys to this group with a, with a top five defense, top 10 defense, certainly, three great skill position players, couple of linemen away from something pretty meaningful. Eric Bianami in charge of an offense, a guy that's overqualified for the position. Yeah, we'd buy you're turning the key, you're turning it over to him if he was the, at the end of the second round. If, even if he was an early third rounder, Davis Mills style, there'd be a different narrative. The fact that he went in the fifth, I think, is, has made people just on its face, given the last couple of years of going to get 800-year-old Fitzpatrick, trading for Carson Wentz, et cetera, when they had to do whatever they could to find a veteran instead of shirking the young quarterback route, nobody believes this is what's going to happen. And I do, by the way. You do, I think. I don't want to speak for you. But people locally, we get it. We see what what's going on here. But the perception, I think, would be dramatically different. I think the the whole idea that going with Sam Howell 
is shocking and there's no way they're going to do it. And of course they're going to try to upgrade and they're going to be in on Derek Carr is almost solely based on where he got drafted. Period. The fact is, this is not your normal fifth round pick. And I have to remind myself of this often, by the way, Mm -hmm. because one of the reasons that I find it unlikely that Sam Howell is going to be a star is because of where he was drafted. Guys that get taken where he got taken do not end up as franchise quarterbacks. They don't. The percentage of that happening is minuscule. I live my life kind of with numbers, right? I I am a believer in analytics, so to speak. And what I know is when a guy gets drafted in the fifth round, there's a couple percent chance they end up being really, really good. There's more context to this one, though. How many guys have ever been drafted in the fifth round that were the number one quarterback in their draft class at the end of the previous season? I would say that's very, very rare. Incredibly rare. How many guys get drafted in the fifth round at quarterback where you almost always get overdrafted that rank in the top 50 on a Daniel Jeremiah board? I would say that never happens. And I'm just picking Jeremiah because that's the guy that asked the question and said Uh he ranked him 48. But there were plenty of people when they put together their draft boards who had Sam Howell in the top 50 prospects going into the class. I don't need to re-legislate and go back over his college career. You guys are smart fans, and you understand now what happened at North Carolina, where he slung it around and had an unbelievable penultimate season, and then a lot of his guys left on offense, and his skill position players were gone, and they weren't as good, and he wasn't as good. He paid the price for that. He did show that he could make plays with his feet, where he ran for 100 yards on seven different occasions. This guy was not playing at... uh, you know, Texas, San Antonio, or Yale. He was playing at North Carolina. He was on national TV every Saturday. He was playing in the ACC against defensive players that are making the league, and over a two-year span, one of those seasons as a passer first, the next with his feet was outstanding. Yeah, when they had weapons, the De'Ami Browns, the Javante Williams is the world, good offensive line, the passing numbers were prodigious. Like, really, really good. Like, as we were talking about, top of the draft type stuff. Once those are gone, this ain't Alabama, right? It's not, you know, Georgia. It's not, you know, Ohio State or Michigan where you're just going to reload. There was a significant talent drop-off at UNC, right? So what do you do? You can't throw it the same way, right? So the the, the numbers suffered in terms of the passing offense. But it was basically, this is why I was intrigued by him in, in the draft process, Grant. He was my favorite of a, of a, of a frankly, a pretty poor class was, what do we need? Okay, I'll just run for 800 yards and double-digit touchdowns. Just whatever the team needs, I'll do that. That's a pretty, you know, demonstrated a pretty diverse skill set there when it comes to to throwing the football, which he did his freshman and sophomore years, where he was on a Heisman Trophy caliber top, you know, draft pick type track, and then everything changed when things changed around him, and he just sort of adapted, and he got dinged for it, I think. I just want, and there's no way to quantify this, but I think we need to point out and want to acknowledge that there's kind of a line in the sand for quarterbacks and where you're drafted and how you're viewed after the third round. Do you agree that that's where it is? Like, yeah. Obviously, the first round is its own entity, and it's its own thing. You basically can't be drafted in round one and then sit and watch for a full year anymore. Almost nobody ever does that. The Packers are the exception with Jordan Love. <clears throat> And I think they weren't really sure that Aaron Rodgers would still be there, and, and we know why now. The last couple of years have been a, a kind of a nightmare for them in the offseason with him. But when you draft the guy in the 
second or third round, which is where Rivera said they thought Sam Howell would go. I'm just running through recent names. Now, not all these guys hit. In fact, most of them didn't. They all got chances. And when they got chances, no one thought it was crazy. When the team said, we're going to try this guy because we drafted and developed him, everyone said, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's not the national perception of Sam Howell because yeah. he went in the, the fifth round. It's like a scarlet letter, to your point, uh-huh. on his chest. 2020, Jalen Hurts in the second round. There you go. When the Eagles played Jalen Hurts, everyone said, can't wait to see what he looks like. Yeah, that makes sense. In 2019, Drew Locke with the Denver Broncos. Nobody thought that was crazy. It wasn't great, but that's not the point. The point is no, no one no, was no. like, what are they doing? Exactly. And if you remember, there was some thought he could go in the first round. But, like, the idea that he went in the second round, irrelevant to the fact that a lot of people thought he was the answer mm-hmm. and he would be the future Broncos quarterback. Yeah. In fact, I would go one step further, and I was wrong about this. I thought he'd start over Geno Smith this year. I was sure of that, And by should the way. start over Geno Smith. Yep. My point is, you know what Geno is. You don't really know what Drew Locke is. Well, we didn't know that Geno was actually really good, but Pete Carroll in Seattle did. 2018, Mason Rudolph was a third-round pick. How many times when Roethlisberger went down did Rudolph come in, and how much conversation over the years was there about how he could be the guy in waiting? Now, again, I don't care that he's not good. That, that is not the point of this conversation. The point is, because he was drafted in the third round, Steelers fans spent four years saying, when Ben leaves over yonder, we're going to go to Mason Rudolph. It's going to work out well, you hear? That was the whole conversation. Uh-huh. Third round pick. If he was a fifth round pick, wouldn't have felt that way. It's just a, a chair. You you can cut him anytime. You can. He's just Mason Rudolph. Twenty seventeen. Deshaun Kaiser. Same thing. Second, third round type guy. Derek Carr in twenty fourteen was a second round pick. My point is, the reason people think Sam Howell can't possibly work out as a franchise guy here is where he got drafted. That's it. That's my take. It's not a bad one. I mean, and, and even I would say even after the second round. It's, uh, yeah, you could do this for now. Like, nobody thinks that Houston's going, we got our guy in Davis Mills. Like, nobody thinks that Minnesota drafted the heir apparent to Kirk Cousins because they took Kellen Mond a couple years ago, right? It's it's a, he's also there, or he's serviceable, you know? Like, to me, it's that first or second round where you give people the benefit of the doubt. After that, maybe third round, you go, okay, fine. It's not crazy for a short amount of time. He's a placeholder, right? He's, you know, he's Bailey Zappi for, for a week or something like that. Later than that, nobody believes it. I mean, go back to Cousins, for example. I mean, honestly, if you go back that far, nobody thought that he could do it. Nobody gave him the benefit of the doubt early on. Because of where he got Because drafted. he was drafted in the fourth round. Outside of the top 100. So let's answer this question on the phones with you guys. MGM National Harbor listener lines next. How much different would the perception of Sam Howell be if he was taken in rounds two or three, like Rivera said? Late two, early three. How much more confident would you personally be that he could actually be really good? If he was drafted there and not in the fifth round, what would the national perception of him, which is that people can't believe this guy is going to get a starting chance, be of this player if he didn't fall to the fifth? Grant and Danny on the fan. Ron Rivera in Indianapolis at the NFL Combine says that Washington sitting there in their boardroom, boardroom, that sounds weird, their draft room. Meeting room? Draft room? Yeah. Uh, Boardroom maybe, but draft room certainly. Look, it's Brian Windhorst on TV. Why (laughs) would Washington draft a player 
in the fifth round. I can't see him, by the way, without thinking and about and not it. do that that thing. That's what the internet does now. Yeah, just That's, turns it blazes into a meme. in my mind. The guy's like reported on a million things a million different times over, but forever. He will be known to me as the guy that sat back in his chair where the whole set was like, what do we do? Like, what are we, are we we're just, Brian is conducting a symphony. Darius, grab me the second half of the clip. Just the uh, post-Daniel Jeremiah question where Rivera says, so the commanders thought he was getting drafted in rounds two or three. When he fell, now you could ask, well, why didn't they take him then? I guess they had other priorities, other things they wanted to do. Why didn't they take him in the fourth? They were moving and shaking. They were checking boxes off the to-do list. But in the fifth round with the first pick in that, round they grabbed Sam Howell and they felt like they got a steal my contention is every guest we have on the show nationally every single one of them says there's no way this is all true about Sam Howell and that they love him and he's going to start next year and my point is why isn't it true he was really good in college he was supposed to go in the first round hell people sleep on this there were people who thought he was going in the top five going into his last year of college it's not that crazy that after a year in their building Wanting to go the cheap route at quarterback, they're going to give this dude a shot. And I think the only reason people are skeptical that he could actually be something is that you got him in the fifth round. It's like paying nothing for shoes. You're like, ah, oh, there's no chance he's one of my favorite shoes ever. Maybe they will be. Maybe they're great shoes. This is Rivera. We kept expecting it to happen somewhere around the second, third round, to be honest with you. And when, when we when we addressed our needs in our first four picks, and we're sitting there going, he's sitting there looking at us, staring at us with the first pick in the fifth round. So we pulled the trigger, and we said, this is going to be our guy, and you know, hopefully he'll develop and, and be able to help us. And, and we really think that's the track he is on right now, is that he's developing, growing, and he has a chance to help us. I admit I viewed Sam Howell differently all last year because he was a fifth-round pick. Okay, I think most of you guys, whether you'll admit it or not, did too. Because I don't think, well, I won't say nobody. Very few of you were calling in here saying, give this guy a shot. We had a few people that were loud that wanted, you know, I can name some of our our callers who would call in and and were Howellians. But for the most part, it's Heineke or it's Wentz. It's Heineke. Let's go back to him. If this guy was drafted in the second round, we would have all been screaming to play him. We weren't. Let's go to Tony in Annandale, home of the Adams. Tony, how you Tony. doing? Oh, also the Annandale Doctors Building. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, well, it's right at the end of the street, Medford, with Annandale High School is. Anyways, the conversation on Sam Howell being drafted, let me give you four quarterbacks who have done well. Jalen Hurts, second round. Tom Brady, what was it, sixth? Kirk Cousins, fourth. And Mr. Relevant, Brock Purdy, seventh. If you add those four up, it equals about 20 rounds divided by four. The average is the fifth round. So let's hope somehow ends up like one of them. I don't think the draft status matters. The main thing, and his offensive coordinator, who was on your show a month ago, said, this guy is completely unflappable. His first year, he starred. His second year, terrible. He ran for his life. He's sturdy. He's got the legs. He's got the arm. I think the future looks good for Sam Howe. Go Adams. Appreciate Thanks, you. Buddy. He says the draft round where he went doesn't matter. And it, it won't matter when he takes the field. That's not what we're asking. I just believe that most of us are skeptical that he could be the guy. Like, if you ask me right now, is Sam Howell going to be the starter for a good commander's team in three years? I would say no. But here's what's crazy. Hmm. Based on what I saw in the preseason... And based on what I saw against Dallas, it's a tiny sample. I would be way more inclined to say yes if he was drafted in round one or round two. And that's probably not fair to Sam Howe. But it's 
But it's also you're playing a numbers game. I, I mean, that's exactly right. In other words, pick pick a year. I'll pick a year. In 2009, what name a team that Curtis Painter, Keith Null, Mike Teal, Tom Brandstatter, Nate Davis, not the guy that writes for USA Today, but the quarterback, Rhett Bomar and Stephen McGee. Where do those guys play? All fourth round or later. You could do that every single draft every year. Those guys are not on rosters, not relevant, nowhere around okay, to be but found. Then should Okay, the, the, that point is the one that all the national people are making when they come on. Should the commanders then say, we can't do this. This guy went in the fifth round. We can't give him the keys to this Ferrari, or or maybe it's a, uh, you know, pick your car that yeah, isn't very it's, good. It's a nice, it's a sensible car. But, yeah. you know, it, it gets you from A to B. Yeah. We can't give him the keys. He was drafted in the fifth round, and the numbers tell us he can't possibly work. But the point isn't to say that it never happens, because it does. Tony pointed out four guys that when it's fourth round or later, right? The point is that I understand the skepticism, and I understand the idea that anything after round three is usually just a throwaway pick in terms of quarterback. You're 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 playing the lottery there. If Sam Howell was taken in the third round, would he have played last season? I think he um, before week eighteen. I think he absolutely would have. I think so too. How big of a role would he have had last year? We could dive into that on Grant and Danny. And if he was taken in the third round like Rivera thought he was going to, he, he also said it could happen in the second round. I believe that everyone we have on to talk about this team from around the country that covers the NFL would be saying Washington unearthed a gem mm-hmm. until he proves he can't play this year if that happens. But look at how he finished. They drafted this guy. This was brilliant. They got him in the second, third round. Now it feels like maybe they lucked into something. Grant and Danny on the fan.